You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. The World Bank and other international financial institutions who had a development mandate shouldn't be funding coal plants to alleviate energy poverty. Financing is the only problem here. And the sector's just all ready to go. The market's there. The returns are there. The companies have their ESG commitments. Everything's there. There's one problem, and that's financing these projects. Like, that's it. For January 25th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As we discussed in the previous show, episode 189, the need to invest more capital in renewable energy projects in the developing world is becoming more obvious every day, and more attention is being given to what needs to be done to make that happen, particularly reforms at the Multilateral Development Banks, or MDBs, like the World Bank. For several years now, Germany, the U.S., and other major funders of the World Bank, along with agencies like the IEA, have called upon the MDBs to find ways to get more capital moving into emerging markets. The pressure intensified last September when David Malpass, the Trump-appointed head of the World Bank, refused to say during a public event at the New York Times whether the burning of oil, gas, and coal was driving climate change. Then at the COP27 climate conference in November 2022, all the world's governments endorsed a call for MDBs, including the World Bank, to define a new vision and operational model that can actually address the global climate emergency. Others have recently issued similar calls. In fact, the very day that we recorded this interview, the NDRC published a blog post entitled, The World Bank Needs to Get Serious About Reform. And that's just one of many such examples we could cite. So I thought we would follow up on episode 189, which highlighted the challenge of financing distributed renewables like rooftop solar in the developing world, with a related conversation focused more on finance for utility-scale projects, particularly in the form of so-called energy transition mechanisms, or ETMs, and just energy transition, or JET, refinancing projects that aim to close coal plants in the developing world long before the end of their expected lifetimes and replace their generation with renewable power. Closing coal plants remains the number one priority globally for reducing carbon emissions. According to the IEA's World Energy Outlook 2022, the electricity sector was responsible for more than one-third of global energy-related CO2 emissions in 2021. And reducing emissions from coal-fired power accounts for about two-thirds of the total emissions reductions to 2030 in the IEA's net-zero emissions scenario. These are still very early days for energy transition mechanisms and just energy transition refinancing projects, but I do think it's encouraging to see where the MDBs are finally taking some real steps to accelerate the energy transition in emerging economies, and how they're doing so can de-risk the sector and motivate much more conventional private sector capital to participate. To walk us through some of these new mechanisms and projects, I turn to Brad Handler, a program manager and researcher at the Sustainable Finance Lab of the Payne Institute at the Colorado School of Mines. Brad is currently researching how to spur more private capital to invest in the energy transition and has been tracking these various projects and initiatives for several years. 
a former Wall Street equity research analyst with 20 years' experience covering the oil sector. Brad has also been a managing director of equity research at Jefferies and worked for several years at Credit Suisse. In all of those roles, Brad published regularly on the state of the oil sector, and so he has a deep understanding of how finance in the traditional energy sector works, giving him an excellent perspective on how it could work for the energy transition as well. He does a wonderful job of explaining the oftentimes opaque and complex world of sustainable finance so that it's comprehensible, and I know you'll get a lot out of this conversation. Then in the news segment, we'll note a political shakeup for South Africa's utility. We'll take a peek at the latest contender for the world's largest wind turbine. We'll recognize some new records for wind power in Britain. We'll register some sharp cuts to energy subsidies in the UK. And we'll salute a new commitment to EVs by the U.S. Postal Service. And now, our conversation with Brad Handler, recorded January 9th, 2023. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Brad, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you very much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you. In the previous episode, we talked about some of the reasons why capital hasn't been getting deployed in distributed non-utility generation, like rooftop solar, especially in emerging markets. And from your perch at the Sustainable Finance Lab at the Payne Institute for Public Policy at the Colorado School of Mines, you have a particularly good vantage point from where to see where money is actually flowing and what's working and what isn't. One article that you published in September last year looked at a joint initiative of the IEA, the World Economic Forum, ETH Zurich, and the Imperial College London called the Cost of Capital Observatory. This project aims to understand why the cost of capital is so high for energy projects in emerging economies and to offer some ideas for how to reduce it. And it will surprise no one who listened to the previous episode that they found, as you described it, quote, underdeveloped risk assessment which I take to be a nice way of saying that the banks have been maybe a bit lazy about figuring out just how to assess the risks accurately and discreetly for projects in emerging economies and have instead just applied the same generic commercial filters that they use across the developed world where, surprise, surprise, it ain't working. (laughs) So why don't you just get us started here with some basic sort of high-level observations on the findings of this cost of capital observatory? Sure. Happy to do that. And actually, I'll start by taking it just one step further back and talking about the ambition of it in the first place. Sure. It's an acknowledgement that what you described is essentially known, that there is underdeveloped risk assessment that happens. That scares away would-be finance providers. And so the initiative is focused on trying to break down the risks, saying, here's a way to kind of build up to your waterfall but with more transparency the goal is to say look there's opportunities here you can assess the risks here's a way to look at respective risks here you can build them up and perhaps that all translates to commercial financial arms offering more competitive whether it's lending or other sort of forms of financing for would-be developers and the like Okay. I'd say that the report that I commented on reflects a couple of things. To be fair to the initiative, I think I think the survey itself was probably undersubscribed. That's probably not the right way to put it, but there were fewer respondents than I think they would have hoped. And so I think mm. you were almost automatically dealing with a group which was not necessarily representative right. of kind of the knowledge base broadly writ. I think you inherently had some people that said, fine, I'll fill out the survey. Some of them were probably the right people to fill out the survey within an organization. Maybe some of them weren't, or they had big knowledge gaps and they did the best they can. But 
putting aside kind of the caveats around the survey, I think the observations that I was trying to make were, gosh, the range of responses would just tell you that there's not enough widely disseminated knowledge about respective risks. And that translates to exactly the problem, which is that in the aggregate, saying I need 15% returns for a solar project in a given developing country is simply going to make that project not get funded. That's not yeah. going to be good enough to get a project funded as, as you and Seth sort of talked about a lot in the last episode. I mean, at 15%, you wouldn't get the project funded in the US probably either. Right. And that leads you to the next step of the cost of capital project itself, which is to say, okay, if the survey itself isn't going to yield quite as much granular information to start filling in the boxes for would-be financial providers, then how do you address it otherwise? And I think yeah. there are lots of ways that they will. You can look at currency histories, for example, to try to get a sense of the average volatility or the volatility range within a given country and start to put parameters on that. You can look at a detailed history with respect to individual projects, distributed generation projects, for example. And so you can start to address counterparty risk for respective types of customers. You have to see how much information you can get, how easy it is to get that information, but presumably you can get your arms around at least some of it. And you can start to put the numbers together, which is, hey, the credit history is pretty good. The default rates are X percent, Y percent, but something that's low you cannot worry about that aspect of risk as much as you might fear. And so you can start to build up the response to the various types of risk that exist. Right. And thereby drive to a conclusion, hopefully, that, hey, you probably have a little bit more latitude to ask for lower rates of return than you fear, you being, of course, the prospective financial source. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about some of the specific findings of this report, because I think these are actually quite illuminating. One of them being is that there was as much as a thousand basis points of spread for a given project in a given country in the WAC. That's the weighted average cost of capital. So we're going to have to unpack this a minute here. So why don't you explain to our listeners what WAC is and then what does thousand basis points mean and what is that spread and why is it there? Okay, sure. So a weighted average cost of capital is hopefully somewhat self-explanatory, but if any given project is funded in part by debt and in part by equity, and you have a different requirement for financial return for different types of debt and equity, then the average of those, of course, it is a weighted average. And that cost of capital is, again, a different way of saying kind of what financial return is required to satisfy your perceptions of risk. Mm -hmm. And so it's just sort of a nice packaging up of, hey, there might be different financial sources. They have inherently different return requirements, but this is a blended average. And so by observing that different respondents in the survey needed as much as a thousand basis points, which is the same thing as saying 10 percentage points. And so essentially what the survey respondents said, in a given country for a given type of development, say utility scale solar, one respondent said they would be willing to lend at 7% and another said they would need 17% in order to lend towards that development. Right. That kind of spread really speaks to, I guess I'll say the immaturity 
of the understanding of risk that's present among the different survey respondents. Mm -hmm. And just to try to put that into a different context, if you're looking at debt markets in the developed world, even green bonds, for example, so we can still stay within the sustainability realm, but we're often talking about premia or discounts of single digit basis points, or maybe 10, maybe 20 basis points as reflecting certain elements of a project being a little riskier than another. And so there's a fine tuning to debt issuance and in that sense, risk assessment. But in this survey, again, caveat being said that there might be too few respondents and perhaps not the right respondents, but you're talking about that notion of fine tuning being completely sort of thrown out. Right. And all of a sudden you're talking about these massive spreads in respondents among would-be financiers who presumably have some experience in terms of project finance and presumably have some exposure to the developing world. Right. And so that's what makes another finding of this report particularly shocking, which is that the cost of capital is two to three times higher in emerging economies than developed or so-called advanced economies. That's just absurd. There's no way that it's that much worse. So how should we understand this problem? Like, why is there such a lack of understanding? Why is there no fine-tuning or nuance in the assessment of risk and the way that's reflected in the cost of capital? Yeah. I mean, I guess one way, you know, you characterized up front this notion of bankers not working as hard as they could to figure it out. And yeah. in a sense, I don't think that's an unreasonable way to think of it. The premise of the private sector doing what the private sector does is that they have a universe of opportunities across different industries, by the way, right? They're not necessarily relegated to looking at power or energy, but that they can sniff out opportunities that exist. And that's both, I guess, good and it's bad. It has been easy enough for much of the private sector, and I know you've explored this in past sessions, including with Seth. It's been easy enough for much of the private sector to dismiss parts of the developing world as being simply challenged. Yeah. And it's not worth the effort to build that base of expertise because we can go chase incremental returns or adequate returns in lots of other sectors right. and in lots of other parts of the world. Right. And so it's just been possible to not do that. I suppose there are probably also some very, very good reasons. I mean, I think in all fairness, it's I haven't been in project finance. I haven't really even worked in that part of banks. And so there's some risk that I'm oversimplifying it or this conversation oversimplifies it. But I do think that there are well understood problems that have occurred, well publicized problems where countries default on debt or where currencies truly do blow up and they do value not a couple of basis points, but they devalue by thousands of basis points. There's real issues that unless you have some understanding of how to protect yourself against some of those risks, they seem really daunting. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's one thing to say that the banks need to work harder to understand these risks or to be more discreet in their assessment of them. And maybe that's a valid point. I'm not on the inside of these operations any more than you are. But 
it is really, really obnoxious from an outsider's perspective to realize that the weighted average cost of capital for solar projects is equal or a bit below natural gas, <laughs> according to the IEA. And so the equation here just doesn't really seem to make sense in the way that these things are being financed. Like in a logical world, in a sane world, I think we would be working as hard as we possibly could to make it cheaper to produce a renewable project than a fossil fuel project. And that's just not what's happening out there. Yeah, I think that's fair. And maybe one way to address it, and maybe we kind of sidestep a little bit, is how does one set up incentives to the private sector to behave in a way that you want them to behave yeah. to private actors? So one of the premises of working with net zero commitments or in institutions like GFANS and the like is that you're going to take financial actors and they are signing up to a commitment to decarbonize their own operations, of course, but much more importantly, follow a path where they are encouraging the decarbonizations of the companies to which they lend. Yeah. And so if they make these commitments, then the next step is to tie the social license benefit of having made that commitment, but following through on that commitment so that you are really adjusting your portfolio in some way. So you're not just stopping to lend to fossil operations, but actively lending to those clean energy operations or perhaps transition operations. We'll get to that, I think, as we start to talk about retiring coal plants and the like. But start to lend to some other things so that you can say, yeah, look, we are actually actively managing our lending portfolio, not just avoiding some of the bad stuff, but encouraging the good stuff as well and getting the credit for that. Right. And although that sounds good, we're still living in a world where that's not actively being managed towards, where I think that the credit that the institutions might get are much more intangible than the perceptions of issues if they take on a lot of risk that they're not prepared to take on. They're not necessarily seeing the value of that. Right. And one of the often mentioned complaints here or concerns that they've got in terms of the risk is that some of these countries are just less stable. And you point out in your observations on this report that, this is how I'm reading anyway what you said, correct me if I'm wrong, if that is the case, if these countries are just sort of inherently less stable and therefore we have to assign them a much higher risk, then you would expect that to be reflected in bond yields for sovereign debt as well. But you're finding here that there's actually a very weak relationship between bond yields for like South Africa and Mexico and the cost of capital for these projects. So what does that tell us? Yeah, I think that speaks to another layer of challenge, I think, which is the counterparty risk and whether that's backstopped by the government whether there are local slash provincial slash state sort of issues around the projects themselves. And perhaps, and there's some risk that I'm speaking a little bit out of school, but and we're mixing and matching some of our topics here, but to talk about distributed generation, we're also looking at a different business model that breaks down 
some of the counterparty relationships that a lot of the lenders are at least used to working with. Right. Now, in point of fact, the smaller customer may wind up being the more credit worthy customer at the end of the day, but it's certainly not something that's a traditional model. There's not a well-established system for checking the credit histories. You're dealing with size issues, of course. There's all sorts of issues with respect to sort of the due diligence challenges associated with the distributed generation model and dealing with much smaller clients. And again, I, I know you guys spoke about all of those challenges to some degree in your conversation with Seth. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I just wanted to kind of complete that point. All right. Well, I'd like to switch tracks a little bit here from why capital isn't flowing to where investment is getting done in support of the energy transition, especially in emerging markets. In your year-end letter for 2022, which included a whole wealth of interesting little summaries of different reports and stuff that I've linked into the show notes, you enumerated a number of interesting and varied programs that are seeing investment, which I think our subscribers would be very interested in hearing more about. And I'd like to start with a so-called energy transition mechanism, or ETM, that is specifically aimed at the energy transition. Then I'd like to talk about some of the recently announced what they call Just Energy Transition, or JET, plans including some of the Just Energy Transition Partnerships, or JETP. I don't know if people say JETP. I've been, I've been calling it that, that we mentioned in the news of the previous episode. But I just mentioned a bunch of acronyms, so <laughs> let's get some definitions <laughs> out of the way. Yeah. What is an energy transition mechanism, or ETM? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Frustrated with the inability of state utility ESCOM to meet the nation's power demand since 2008, the government of South Africa has finally moved to change its oversight. 
In the first week of 2023, the governing African National Congress adopted a resolution specifying that state companies operating in specific economic sectors should be overseen by the relevant government departments. That would effectively dissolve the Department of Public Enterprises that currently oversees ESCOM and other entities, and put ESCOM under the oversight of the Energy Department instead. At a media event on January 9th, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa endorsed the move. As we mentioned in today's conversation, and as we discussed at length in episode 106, ESCOM, which supplies more than 90% of South Africa's electricity, has operated an unreliable and expensive power grid relying on a fleet of old and poorly maintained coal-fired power plants. In 2022, it notched a record 205 days of rolling blackouts, stifling economic growth and investment, and precipitating a national energy crisis. The jet plan we discussed in today's conversation is part of a government plan to split the nearly century-old company into three units and recapitalize part of its debt. However, the change in oversight in ESCOM does not necessarily portend faster action on South Africa's energy transition. The country's energy minister has opposed plans to transition the economy to renewable energy. He has also been a vocal critic of ESCOM's outgoing chief executive officer, André de Reuter, who resigned on December 14th under political pressure after failing to solve the company's crisis. After officially taking office in January 2020, de Reuter led a company-wide clampdown on corruption and organized crime influence in the company, including sabotage of infrastructure at ESCOM plants. De Reuter was allegedly the victim of an attempted cyanide poisoning in December, which is currently under investigation by police. Item 2. There's a new contender for the largest wind turbine in the world, and this time it's not from GE. CSSC Haizhuang Wind Power, a subsidiary of China State Shipping. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show. Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant. And Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.